Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're a God who created us. You didn't just wind up the world and step away expecting or anticipating for us to just figure things out or watching in in heaven as we destroyed ourselves, but Lord, you made yourself known to us. And in particular, we see very specifically you made yourself known to us in the person of Jesus Christ. You made yourself known to us by grace, to all of us who are here who believe, Lord, by grace, to Adam who just shared, by grace, uh, Lord, to, to our friends and neighbors and coworkers who don't, who don't believe, Lord, we're, we're burdened um, this morning uh, for them, and, and yet you offer grace to relieve those burdens. And that's what we pray, Lord, that even this morning as we hear your word, that um, this grace would teach our hearts to fear and grace our fears relieve, Lord, that um, you enable us to speak boldly and humbly and to be freed in your love. And so we pray all of this in Jesus. We pray that you'd show us Christ in the text. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things our younger uh, kids do in school in the deck house is to rewrite various Greek myths and legends, which then they like to share with us as a family together at the dinner table. So uh, at school, Nora in particular will rewrite a, a, a Greek myth, a Greek legend, and then at the table, kids will often want to share what they've written. Here's Nora's retelling of a classic with which most of you are familiar in her words and structure that I think might be helpful for us as a beginning point in the text that we're studying today. She writes, Bacchus lifted up his cup and said to you, King Midas, and because you let me stay here, because you have shared your meals with me, I will grant you only one wish. Midas looked both ways in shock. Really? Really? Bacchus assured. Anything I want? Yes, yes. Oh, wow, King Midas shrieked. I want everything that I touch, and I mean everything, to turn to gold. Bacchus let out a sigh. You already have all the money you could ever want. Midas shook his head. No, no. One never has enough gold. I guess I will have to grant it, Bacchus said, sighing again. Midas fell to the ground in excitement, and when his hand touched the grass, even the tiniest blade turned to gold. It worked! Midas stared at that blade. Bacchus, I'm the richest man ever, he screamed, throwing his hands in the air. He looked both ways, but Bacchus had already left him. Midas shrugged. He didn't really care. Right now he had something to do. He jumped up, touching every little thing, turning them to gold. His servants heard him and wondered what the excitement was about. So they came to him. They all laughed and clapped when they saw him. Everyone seemed very happy for Midas. The king spent the rest of the afternoon eagerly turning things to gold. Finally, tired but satisfied, Midas grew hungry. He had his meal set up in his yard. He tried to take a big bite of his food. But alas, he bit only into a gold nugget. Midas laughed uneasily, then tried to drink from his royal cup, but his lips only touched the dry, cold gold. Midas let out a huge cry, I've been a greedy fool. Take this curse away from me, Bacchus. I will die of hunger and thirst. He fell to the floor and wept. Arise, Midas. The king looked up to see Bacchus. You've been a greedy fool indeed. 
but I will give you mercy and free you from your curse. The king got up and thanked Bacchus about a hundred times. Then he happily ate his food. Okay, so why do we begin with this story as an introduction to John chapter 2? Well, here we have this familiar ancient story that highlights, it's a myth, it's a legend, it highlights though something true about us, something true in human nature. It highlights our propensity to turn even the things of the greatest beauty and value in our world, things that we would normatively view as blessings, into curses. And of course, you know, of course it's a legend. Of course it's a myth. But we, we actually do this all the time. Like, that's not legend. That's not myth. We do this all the time. By making a good thing our ultimate thing, we bring corruption even to that which is good. And it, by, by definition, it then corrupts everything else, right? Even the good and beautiful things in our world, things that were given for our enjoyment, end up being curses rather than blessings. They drain us rather than giving life. They enslave us rather than setting us free. They discourage us. They bring like heavy discouragement rather than encouraging our hearts. They leave us wanting more and more and more rather than actually satisfying. And so there are several examples of this. There are several ways in which we do this. Several examples of things that are really good and that they're actually for our good and they actually should bring enjoyment and life and peace and health and all those things. But we now approach them wrongly. We now approach them with sick hearts, you know. Because of our sin, they become corrupted. Our work is certainly one of those places. There's broad agreements in our Western world that the way we've approached our work has brought about more anxiety, more stress, less life, less freedom. Uh, despite the fact that creating something valuable, you know, putting our hands to something good, it, it really appears to be something that, that should give us joy. And so there's a lot of podcasts, you know, a lot of YouTube videos, a lot of uh, books that are written attempting to solve this problem right now in, in larger culture of the reality that our work seems to be eating us alive in some ways, right? Tonight we're going to host a, a faith in work night at our Sunday evening gathering. Matthew talked a little bit about it. Three of us are going to give TED Talk style presentations, just 15 to 20 minutes, related to how the gospel shapes our lives. I'm going to offer a short theology of work. Ellie Maher is going to share from her own experience related to what it looks like to live on mission in the workplace and have your work shaped by the gospel. Paul Burr is going to share about how the gospel makes us more productive in our work. So please join us in this. And if you know friends, neighbors, coworkers who might be curious about this kind of a topic too, this is a great opportunity to bring someone. Think about invites along these lines. Um, because here we have an example of something that should be joyful, but often brings the opposite of joy. You know, Bacchus, this character in the story who grants Midas that wish, he's what the Greeks called Dionysius, the Romans called him Bacchus. He's the god of wine, the one who represents the giving of joy, the giving of the feast, the lord of the feast. But our hearts no longer know how to feast. Our hearts no longer know how to hold even the most joyful things without corrupting them. And the reason we start here this morning is because what this means for us is that we're in need of someone, something to come and make all this new again. 
You know, that in creation we were given this good world that then we corrupted, but the giver of this world now comes to bring restoration and redemption, to lift the curse again. He's the true giver of joy, the one who gives us all good things, the one who comes to restore us to life again, that we might have joy in him. And so there's this, that's, that's the theme now that the author John sets us off in, There's this new creation theme over the next few chapters. Now that we're so well acquainted after the prologue in chapter 1 about who this man is, this word, this eternally pre-existent second person of the Trinity, none other than Jesus himself, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Now we start to see a picture of what he does. And as Osborne notes about the chapters we focus on now, he says the theme, starting now, is that in Jesus we have the new wine, the new temple, the new birth, the new and living water, the new worship. We start to see this in narrative after narrative after narrative after narrative. Though our propensity is to take even good things and bring them to corruption, Jesus comes to bring restoration. You know, that we might not just have life, but have enjoyment. You know, uh, how does he do this? Well, we actually see a glimpse into exactly who Jesus is and what he comes to do in this first sign that he performs in John chapter 2. So let's note together, if you're taking notes, I believe we've provided an outline in the liturgy packet, but here we see six parts of the sequence, okay? Six parts of the sequence of the narrative. We're just going to follow the narrative arc to show us how Jesus offers this kind of life, this kind of restoration, this kind of newness. First we see, number one, the date and setting. The date and setting. This is like the context of the passage. So verses one and two. On the third day, there's the date, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So there's the setting. So a few things to note about the context here, the date and setting, that will help us really understand right at the outset the kind of restoration in life that Jesus holds out to us. First, note when this story takes place. The text says that it happens on the third day. Now, what this almost certainly means, there's really not any real disagreement here, is that uh, this is the third day since the last recorded event in the narrative. All right. And um, in other words, I've been doing this really intentionally the last few weeks, but we've been, we've been walking together through what's been happening, reminding one another of this, the sequence of the narrative from texts uh, in, in weeks prior to this text, right? And the re- reason we've been doing that is very intentionally because John's leading, it some, leading us somewhere with this. This is one of the only times, one of two times in his gospel account that he takes great care at identifying when things are happening, like the timeline in the narrative, right? So on day one, A delegation comes to John to question him about his ministry. And who is it that this John the Baptist is pointing forward to? Day two, John sees Jesus walking toward him and declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Day three, John sees Jesus again, says the exact same thing, but he tells it to a couple of his disciples who are in earshot, who then follow Jesus, spend time with him, and also come to this conclusion that he is this Messiah. And then on day four, those disciples go and tell other disciples who then also come to Jesus and believe. And and that day was on day four. That was last week's text, all right? 
So now our text begins three days after that, which is to say that this is happening, the events of this narrative, happening on the seventh day. And John isn't including these details for no reason. Again, this is one of two places where he painstakingly makes sure to chart out the course of the events. I think John has seven days in mind for a very particular reason. I mean, if you remember, there, there are seven days in the creation event of Genesis chapter 1. And all along, John has already had this kind of old creation, new creation theme. In the prologue, if you remember, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So there's old creation. He made all things. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. There's new creation. What he came to do. He made all things. He created all things. And in this act of old creation, he brought life into the world. You could ask, how did this word of God bring life into the world? Well, foundationally, before anything else, he does it by speaking speaking that life into existence. He actually created the world. There's old creation, but the reason he became flesh to dwell among us was to bring us life in him, life instead of the spiritual death in which we live apart from him. Life that begins now and goes on for all eternity. Life that we'll have a chance to look at in great detail when we get on Easter Sunday. Our text is John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let's think about friends, neighbors, co-workers we could be bringing on Holy Week as we look at John 3 together. Good Friday as we talk about how the Son of Man was lifted up and what that means for us. That just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so is the Son of Man. But then on Easter Sunday, we focus on this idea that through that event we might have Life. So there's this Old Testament, you know, old, or there's this old creation, new creation, old covenant, new covenant theme in John that I think he wants to point us back to by telling us when this event took place. The old creation took place in seven days, and this event, declaring now the new creation, occurs on the seventh day. And so the date of this event, I think, helps us focus right at the outset on this newness, this new creation. It's restoration of that which is broken, newness of life. But the setting of this event also helps us. This is taking place at a wedding, a celebration in which the bridegroom would go and prepare a place for his bride. And then when that place was ready, he would come and he would call out to the, to the bride. And there would be a celebration, a procession through the streets back to the place that he had prepared for her where there would be days of, there'd be a wedding feast, days of feasting and festivities, the imagery of that event, a wedding, will be used by John in this gospel account. And later on when he writes Revelation. And also by many other New Testament authors to signify what Jesus the bridegroom is doing for his bride. You see it in the Old Testament too. Both the date and the setting speak volumes about this theme. Now to be clear, I'm not saying these things didn't really happen this way. And so John's just speaking metaphorically or symbolically. No, I'm, I'm arguing that these events happened this way, that this is eyewitness testimony, and that in God's sovereignty and through John's use of these historical realities, as he writes and weaves them in, he both wants to express these eyewitness accounts of what actually happened while simultaneously drawing our attention to these extra layers of spiritual reality. And we see that all through John. In fact, I'd argue, along with other New Testament scholars, that 
the way this is written, you know, you get to, to John 2 and you read 1 through 11 after already learning what we've learned about Jesus. And the way John 2, 1 through 11 is written gives more credence to the belief that these are historical events, not less. Not less. You know, back in the early 2000s, a Duke University English professor named Reynolds Price wrote his own translation of various parts of the Gospels. So he translated, he's an English professor at Duke, he translated various portions of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And very favorable reviews, even in places like the New York Times, very favorable reviews of his translation work. But in his lengthy introduction to the translation, I like a good lengthy introduction, listen to what he says. Listen to what he says about both John's writing in general and this miracle in particular. Because he looks at this first miracle and he essentially says, no way, like there's no way this was made up. He says, you know, if this was made up, if if someone came along and said, I'm going to fabricate a story about Jesus being God himself entering into human history, and I need to come up with his first miracle, they'd never write it this way in a million years, he says. So this is what he writes. He says, if you just read this, so this is Reynolds Price, if you just read this, and if you're a writer yourself, you know that this must have happened. Remember, he's an English professor, so writing is kind of his thing. If you're a writer yourself, you know this must have happened. If you were inventing a biography of Jesus Christ, if you were telling a story that was fiction, you would never invent, he says, for your inaugural sign, a miraculous solution to a mere social embarrassment. Let me say that again. If you were inventing a biography of Jesus Christ, you'd never invent for your inaugural sign a miraculous solution to a mere social embarrassment. He says the only logical explanation for this particular sign being the first one is that it must have happened. Author and pastor Tim Keller agrees with this. You know, this is what Tim Keller does so well. I know about Reynolds Price and his writing in part through the work of Keller, right? So um, it's kind of work that Keller does that will remain as one of his many legacies that he leaves behind. But he essentially summarizes Price's argument this way. He says, as a writer, I know this. If I was inventing a life of Jesus, I would want to make sure that the first miracle was extremely quintessential. And the very first sign, the very first thing Jesus did, not walking on water, not raising someone from the dead, not all the other possibilities, far more dramatic. Instead, what you have here is a not very big deal. A party looks like it's going to go for two days instead of three days. Wow, what a shame. If you were going to fabricate your own first miracle, you would never in a million years choose this. So, so then the question becomes, you know, okay, then why does Jesus choose this miracle? And then also, you know, another layer to that question is why does John choose to include it? Because when we started in John chapter 20 with John's purpose statement in writing the book, do you remember what he says? He says that he included some things and he omitted some things. And, you know, there are some things that aren't going to... He says, if I tried to write everything, it wouldn't all fit. So John's making decisions here related to what he's putting in the text. Why didn't, why did John do that? Why didn't he say, no, no, no. I mean, yeah, that was the first thing he did, but it doesn't have enough pop to it. You know, so maybe the first thing I'll share about is the calming the storm or the raising Lazarus from the dead or the blind man seeing again. Those things, they've got some real juice, you know. Um, Here we don't see that. But no, that's, that's not the case. It's included here. And the reason is Jesus wants to show us something about his very nature. 
John wants us to see something about his very nature, about who Jesus is and what he came to do, which now brings us, okay, to the issue at hand. We move from the date and setting, it's the context of the passage, the seventh day of the narrative, old creation, new creation theme, seventh day of the narrative, in which Jesus and the disciples are invited to a wedding, to now find a desperate situation. We find ourselves in a desperate situation. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Okay, so I think our initial instinct is to read that and kind of agree with Keller, because I just said, like, this gives way to a desperate situation. Look with me at this desperate situation. When the wine ran out, and we think to ourselves, like, how much wine do people really need at a wedding? Everybody had some. The text tells us everybody had more than enough in terms of a lot to drink. Didn't, didn't everyone get at least a couple glasses? And in our context, wouldn't we say that if everybody got a couple glasses of wine and the wine ran out, at the very least it'd be like, maybe you could say it's more of a bummer than a desperate situation. But no, you know, I, as we'll see in a minute, yeah, everyone got at least a glass. But we have to understand this would have been something of a major embarrassment for the family, in particular of the groom, because in this case it was the groom's responsibility. He left to prepare a place. This is a place where there'd be feasting and celebration and life. And um, financially, he's responsible to be the one who provides. The tradition here was for days of festivities. Hospitality is the, the issue here, not wine. Wine, wine, you know, is linked to merriment throughout the scriptures and joy and, and all of that. And here we see that linked with hospitality. Hospitality was such a big deal that it was not only expected that there would be wine at this party, but it would be rather shameful if it wasn't offered throughout the festivities. So something has happened here with the wine, and, and it's not a good thing for the family. And the only thing that can really be done about it in order to bypass that dilemma is to provide enough wine. Okay, that's, that's, that's the solution here uh, to, to ending the shame. And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, turns to Jesus in this dilemma. The assumption of the text here is that Jesus and Mary, they're somehow uh, relatives with the people who are getting married. That's kind of the working assumption. Probably the groom, because both Jesus and his mother are present. They're invited. Mary does appear to have some level of responsibility at coordinating some of it. Traditionally, that would be family members because she's trying to do something about it. So the question is now, and I won't spend a lot of time here, but it's an interesting question to think about. And I spent a lot of the week thinking about it. But what exactly was Mary expecting? And the short answer is we don't really know. Like the text does not tell us. Um, and I, th I think we have our own way of reading this, this nar narrative and we see it a certain way on the basis of like how many times we've read it, that might not be completely accurate. So I think we can say two things, both hesitantly. First, as the gospel accounts inform us, Mary does know something about the nature of Jesus. You know, she's been told that he's the Messiah. She's had angelic appearance. She treasured these things in, his heart, in her heart that, that he's the promised one of God come to save. Mary, did you know? Yeah, she knew. At the same time, we throw a lot of shade at that song. We do. We throw a lot of shade at that song. Mary, did you know? Yeah, she knew. Of course she knew. Now, listen. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would someday walk on water? See, that I don't think she knew. 
I don't. So, yeah, she knew, but how much did she know? That leads me to say, secondly, while she knows something about the nature of Jesus, while she's claimed belief that he's the Messiah, her knowledge of what that means, like the rest of the disciples, is incomplete. She doesn't have some working post-resurrection understanding of Christ at this point. She doesn't have this, like, completely developed Christology at this point. She, she believes he's the Messiah, but it's incomplete information for her. I mean, the disciples confess that he's the Messiah, and then they're super surprised that he's walking on water. It's just not the kind of Messiah that people are expecting. So here's what I think we can say. Mary knows that she can turn to Jesus in the midst of a desperate situation. And what I mean by desperate situation is that she also knows, I mean she must know, that there's not much that can be done in this situation short of the miraculous. You know, and really scratching my head about this, you know, most commentaries say there wasn't a reason for her to expect a miracle. More likely, here you have Mary relying on the resourcefulness of her son. But I don't think that's enough to just leave it at that because the situation dictates something more be done. Like it's really hard to envision Mary thinking that the way this gets solved is Jesus making a run to the supermarket. So I think Mary doesn't know what to expect, but she turns to Jesus out of desperation, not knowing what to do herself, but knowing that if anyone will know something to do, Jesus will know. Part of that because of what she knows about the nature of Jesus. Okay. But this is where things maybe get confusing because she comes to him in that way and Jesus responds this way. Verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So what's going on here? You know, his mom turns to him out of desperation and this is his response? Why? Like, this is where we move from a desperate situation to a distancing statement. A distancing statement. Thirdly, because that's, that's actually precisely what's happening in the text. I think sometimes we think that what's happening here is Jesus is saying, I don't want to perform a miracle. Like, Mary expected a miracle. She had this high expectation of a miracle. And Jesus is like, it's not time for miracles yet. What are we doing here? And then later on, Jesus changes his mind. He's like, okay, fine, you know. I don't think we should view Jesus and his decision-making in this way. So let's clarify a couple of things. First, Jesus isn't being rude. This way of speaking had a tone more of dear woman, or as F.F. Bruce suggests, woman dear is probably the more literal rendering in some ways. So this, I mean, culturally speaking, so this isn't rudeness. It's very frank, but it's not rude. So to the students here at Gospel Life Church, if your mom tells you to clean your room or asks you to take out the trash, you know, you can't respond by saying, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. And then tell her you're just trying to become more like Jesus, okay? Not going to work because while he's absolutely being direct, he's not being rude. And, and he's not trying to avoid helping his mom, you guys. He's making sure that at this moment she understands. Listen, he's making sure at this moment she understands the nature of his work. Jesus, in a very real sense, is distancing himself from her when it comes to what he came to do. It's a distancing statement. The, the purpose of his coming. He does a similar kind of thing in John 6, right? So what's the purpose of his coming? He says, woman, my hour, woman dear, my hour has not yet come. What does my hour mean as you look throughout John's gospel? And why do I think this is not just referring to will he perform the miracle or won't he? Hour is a technical term in John's gospel. We'll see it many times moving forward. And it is always related centrally to the cross of Christ. 
It's related to a cup, the cup that, of wrath that Christ would have to bear for his people, that he willingly and lovingly stepped into to bear on behalf of his people. That's the work he came to do. That's the purpose of his coming. And when it comes to that work, he distances it from his mom. He does something similar in John chapter 6. He's gained a following. We'll see later on, you know, his own brothers come to him. So Mary's other sons, his own brothers, they come to him and they try to tell him, hey, um, let's go up to the Feast of Tabernacles right now. Let's go right now. Let's capitalize on this popularity. As though they're trying to be his messianic campaign managers. But Jesus tells them, nope, nope, I'm not going up. And then later he goes up. It's like, but Jesus, he's not lying to them. He's distancing his purpose in his coming from them and saying, you don't get a say in when I do what I do. I want to be real clear about who's in charge of this and who's not. They don't get a say in this. They're not the ones in charge. They don't understand what they ask of him. You know, and it's a good thing too, right? Because if Jesus' disciples, if his mom, if his brothers, if they're the ones in charge of what his messiahship looks like, if they're calling the shots on what happens and when it happens, you want to know what's going to happen? They're going to try to take him to Jerusalem, make him king, push out the Romans, because that's their idea of what needs to happen, how the Messiah comes to save. Meanwhile, what's still present in the human heart? Sin! What's the most insidious reality that we need dealt with? Sin. So Jesus, in his mercy and grace, distances himself in this way from his disciples because he's come to do something that they fundamentally don't understand but that they need so deeply. This is where Carson's super helpful. He writes, We must not avoid the conclusion that Jesus, by rebuking his mother, however courteously, it was courteous, declares at the beginning of his ministry his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. Carson says, this is not callousness on Jesus' part. On the cross, he makes provision for Mary's future. But she, like every other person, must come to him as the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Neither she nor anyone else dare approach him on an inside track. And, I, you know, I think this is true. I think this is true for us. When it comes to the work of Christ, there are times in which I think we presume to think that we're saving ourselves. We presume to think that somehow we're in charge or we're, we're the ones who are doing, we're the ones who are accomplishing. And I think... You know, it's more than possible when it comes to the work of Christ, rather than forming a church that tries to function out of the audacious belief that we somehow are his campaign managers, because we can do that, right? We can sometimes approach the word, and the word says, like, it's, man, this is, you want to know how people come to faith in Christ? It's not your work. It's the Spirit's work. Yes, he uses us. But normatively speaking, it's, it's like the Spirit of God working through the word of God to bring people to conviction and repentance and all of those things. But it's so easy to have this audacious belief that says, you know, yeah, 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 spirit of God through the word of God. But, you know, A, it's really hard for me to measure that. B, it's, you know, like it's, it happens kind of slowly. So, you know, I, 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 Jesus, just trust us. We got this. We know our culture. We know what to do in order to convince people into the kingdom here or whatever, right? Like, we somehow see ourselves as campaign managers who know better than him the kinds of ministry methods we should be pursuing in order to really be successful, but instead we need to hear, this is his work, not ours. 
We don't get a say in that. He's the one who's at work. We can't bring someone from spiritual death to spiritual life. The gospel doesn't give way to a self-reliant approach to ministry. It strips that away from us because it shows us on the ground level that not only are we not in charge, but if we were the ones in charge, it would be to our utter ruin. Everything would just start crumbling around us. Like That's what I'm saying. If the, if the disciples are in charge here, it's not a good thing. So Jesus distances himself. And that actually, that gospel statement that Jesus makes here, and it's a gospel statement. My hour has not yet come. I'm the one who does this work. You need to understand that that gospel statement gives way now to a dependent spirit. Fourthly, verse 5, a dependent spirit. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. We don't have to spend a lot of time here because we've already noted what her expectations are. We've noted the distancing statement on the part of Jesus but notice that even with Jesus' disclaimer of who's in charge of this and who isn't in charge of it, she simply responds in a way that puts matters in his hands. And that's the right response. You know, like She entrusts things to him. She doesn't presume to tell him what to do, but rather she allows him to do whatever he will. Whatever he will. And here we see a big difference between Mary and her sons later in chapter 6. We see a big difference between Mary and the other disciples when they also turn to him in a desperate situation later on. So like Mary, when it comes to their expectations, the disciples' expectations, they're in a boat with Jesus. Storm comes. Comes upon them. They wake Jesus out of their own fear. Like Mary, when it comes to their expectations, the text isn't entirely clear. You know, We're not sure what they expect Jesus to do about it. But we do see that they certainly don't appear to have an expectation of him having authority over the winds and the waves. Who is this man? That even the winds and the waves obey him. This is coming after their announcement early in John that he's the Messiah, this promised one of God, right? But in the end, they're rebuked because they wake him out of a fearful heart that's not at all trusting. Here Mary is pictured as one who has the kind of simple trust in Jesus that the gospel creates. Jesus makes a gospel statement in verse 4, Dear woman, this is my work, not yours. And that gospel statement prompts a dependent spirit. Do whatever he tells you. He's the one in charge, right? And that's where we finally see a dramatic sign. Okay, so with all that behind us now, whose work this is, whose work it isn't, now we come to the dramatic sign, verses 6 through 10. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the wine, the water now become wine. And did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Here we have more imagery. Okay, so throughout the section, we have more imagery. But right away in verse 6, we have more imagery related to the old and the new. The old and the new, right away. Because here you have these stone water jars that are used in order in, to, to become ceremonially clean according to Old Testament stipulation. So if you open your Old Testament, what you'll find is there's a lot of these ceremonial laws. Don't, you can't eat shellfish. 
certain kind of clothes that you can and can't wear, certain rites of washing and purification. Why? You have to make yourself clean in order to come before God and sacrifice, in order to come before the Lord and worship, in order to come to one another in fellowship. There's this clean law of the Old Testament, ceremonial clean laws. And it's quite remarkable, it's quite a remarkable thing that these jars, the ones that were used to uphold the ceremonial law in which you must make yourselves clean in order to worship and have fellowship, those are now the means that Jesus employs to make this new wine. Okay, so in, in, interpreters aren't entirely agreed on whether the wine comes from the jars or the well. There are some who argue, I think quite compellingly, that Jesus says, fill up these six jars with water to the brim. That's water in those jars. And then this phrase here, now draw some out. And then later in verse 9, though the servants who had drawn the water, that phrase, drawn the water or draw some out, almost universally is talking about a well. So in other words, now that these ceremonial pots are filled with water, the rest of what's coming out is wine, is good, true, and new wine. The old covenant, this old law has been filled. But, but the idea is, right, okay, so regardless of where the wine comes from, Jesus simultaneously makes that which is unclean clean, makes that which is water wine. And not only so, but let's think about that for a minute. He fills it to the brim. He fills these ceremonial pots to the brim, these jars to the brim. Regardless of where the wine is coming from in the miracle, he's showing us in such a unique way why he came. The time for the ceremonial clean laws is fulfilled in his work. Like he came to bring an egg. To bring an end to this idea, this striving after making yourself pure enough to come to God and worship. New wine. You, you can't make yourself clean enough to enter God's presence. These ceremonial clean laws were given to us in order to show us, at least in part, that we could never do it. We could never do enough. We could never clean ourselves up enough. But Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. To the brim, you guys. Not even a part of this that we... He didn't leave like some left open so that there were still some things that we needed to do. It's not Jesus' grace and mercy plus some work now that we need to accomplish. Jesus did his 99%. We must do our 1%. He filled them to the brim. Jesus came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, and by doing that, he made it possible for us to be made new again, for us to have life again. See, here we have a dramatic sign. So I say it's a dramatic sign, right? In the outline. Yeah, it's dramatic, and on two counts, all right? First, you have a supernatural intervention that's wholly unexpected. Reynolds Price, right? A miraculous solution to a mere social embarrassment. It's dramatic in that it's a miracle. It's something only Jesus could do. None of us could do it, right? Somebody joked around with me this morning, did you fill the communion cups with water, you know? Um, no, right? We, we, can't, we, can't, we can't do that. Something only Jesus could do. So it's dramatic in that sense. But it's also dramatic in the sense that Jesus does it, that it might become something of a living parable for us, showing the drama of doctrine, to use a phrase by a former professor of mine, Kevin Van Hooser. The drama of doctrine. In other words, here we have doctrine. Here we have the doctrine of, of Christ, the doctrine of the cross. My hour has not yet come. I have come that you might have life. Filling these things to the brim, demonstrating no longer do you strive and strive and strive to make yourselves pure. My ministry is my work is to come and fulfill that ceremonial clean law that now through faith in what I've done and not in yourself, you might have this kind of life. It's, it's dramatic in that it's a, 
It's the drama of that doctrine now uh, being lived out, acted out before our very eyes. And he reveals it. That's, that's the sense in which this reveals the glory of Christ. Like we could read and say like, how does this text declare Christ's glory? That's how it shows us the cross. It shows us the cross and he reveals his glory here to us so clearly through this drama of doctrine acted out for us. On the one hand, you know, this is a supernatural solution to an ordinary world problem. But on the other hand, it's a statement about what Jesus came to do in making all things new. C.S. Lewis refers to this, I love this, Lewis refers to this as an old creation miracle as a new creation parable. You know, here you have an An old creation miracle that actually happened. Jesus showing his power over creation. But he's using it as a new creation parable. Showing us that he came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. To completely fulfill this idea that somehow you need to work your way into the kingdom. That somehow you need to purify yourself. You can't do it. He came to do it for you. So then what's the response to that? That's where we finally see a declarative summary. Verse 11. This... The first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. There it is. There's the response. Like, I can't do it, so I trust in the one who can. I can't do it, so I put my faith in the one who can. So from right here in chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through John chapter 12, verse 50, this whole section is going to make up this first big part, this first major part of John's gospel, the way that it's structured. Most scholars refer to it as the book of signs. And that's because, you know, the idea here is you have Jesus' public ministry in these next 11 chapters in which, what does he do in his public ministry? He performs these signs that reveal his glory to us. How do they reveal his glory? By showing us why he came. You know, it's showing us how we can foundationally have life in him. And the text says, it's declarative, you know. And his disciples believed in him. What's John's purpose in writing? He wants his readers to believe. So he includes here. He includes here they believed. You know, John's issuing a declarative summary. He wants to shepherd his readers to what he believes is the only right response to Jesus. Like, at the end of the day, the question here is, what do you do about Jesus? So whether you're here and you're a non-believer, whether you're here and you've believed your whole life, we need to come to these texts and ask ourselves the question, foundationally like whether or not you call yourself a Christian and what you believe it means to be a Christian is all tied up with this question. What do you do about Jesus? What do you do with Jesus here? And, I, and, and it's at that point that we have two points of application to the text that really we can ask in the form of two questions. I think we'll drill down into the meaning of this text. All right, so number one, do you still believe that you need to make yourself clean? You know, are you still in some sense, you know, still trying to do that? Still trying to work up enough purity and goodness that you could come before the Lord? The text asks us that question because foundationally in many different ways, we see Jesus saying, it's my work, not yours. The time of that is fulfilled in me. It was pointing to me all along. And I've come to do that work on your behalf. 
Like, and so the question is, do you not know who Jesus is? Like, you can be a non-believer, and you can be here, and you can say, like, man, I find my righteousness in all these other things. I make myself right, you know? You can be someone who has been in the church your whole life and have that same response of, of trying to make yourself good enough and clean enough in order for, for God and others to accept you. Do you not know who Jesus is? What do you do about Jesus? Reliance is what we're called to. Like a belief, a gospel belief is what we're called to. What's the right response to Jesus in the passage? Believing. What are we believing? That he can do what we can't do. Reliance that turns to him in the midst of our own desperation. A a realization we can't make ourselves clean. That we can't do the work necessary to save ourselves. That everything we touch is corrupted and then just corrupts everything. So we need to cry out to, to, to God through Jesus, to remove this curse from us the way that Midas cries out to Bacchus, the god of wine, the giver of joy, because everything he touched is being corrupted. He needed Bacchus to lift the curse. We need Jesus to lift the curse. It's a desperate situation. So do you still believe that you can make yourself clean? Are you relying on yourself? Are you still in some sense trying to do that? Do you not know who Jesus is? Who, what he came to do? That leads us to then number two. Do you believe that Jesus is the true giver of joy? Are you trying to find ultimate joy in other places? You know, and, and again, there are ways that we'll talk about it in a minute, but non-believers, believers, we can both respond in this way where we really lack a trust that God is the giver of joy for a lot of different reasons. You know, like it's no surprise that Bacchus makes an appearance in Narnia in the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, like Lewis very craftfully puts Bacchus in his narrative Mr. Tumnus is talking about when Narnia was first created. Lewis writes, The fawn began to talk of Bacchus himself. When the streams would run red with wine instead of water, and the whole forest would give itself up to jollification for weeks on end, like God created this good world for our joy and enjoyment, but then what happened? A problem came to Narnia, the fall of mankind and sin, and so at the end of Prince Caspian, after he rescues Narnia from sinful man, when Aslan returns to parade through the streets with the children, breathing life into everything that he sees, you know who's with him? Bacchus is there in Narnia, the giver of joy. Lewis uses him to show us more about redemption, God's glory, what's been lost because of sin, what he came to redeem and restore in Jesus. And here in John 2, we see, right, that the true and better giver of joy, the true and better master of the feast is Jesus himself. You know, like, why are so many Minnesotans and Midwesterners not worshiping this morning? You know, um, I think it's because, especially in a Midwestern context where so many of us were raised in religious households or in various denominations, right? There's like a religious experience, historical experience in the Midwest that's not true of all other places, in the U.S., there are some who might say, well, I had a semi-religious upbringing, but, you know, now I want to enjoy myself. You know, I did the church thing for a while, but now I want to enjoy myself. Now I want to have a life that, like, seeks, out, seeks after, I want to be able to have pleasure in life. And the same question is, like, yes, yes, at the cross we lay, our, we, we, we lay down our, our desires and we embrace Christ's, but do you not know who Jesus is? The same question applies because Jesus is the giver of life, right? That when I die to self, and I live for Christ, 
There's a joy inexpressible. Like there's a master of the feast here in the text who samples this new wine, declares it the best wine ever tasted, and Jesus is the true and better master of the feast who not only presides over the wedding celebration, but brings redemption and restoration to the broken party, bringing joy and life by way of his own death on our behalf. And we celebrate this every week when we come to the table. When we pick up the bread, his body broken, we pick up the cup, the reality that his blood was shed for us, and we declare with joy that he comes to make all things new, that he poured out his blood that we might have new wine in him, that we might have joy everlasting that gives way to all eternity, a life that we'll be able to talk about for weeks ahead here in John 